All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's good to be here uh, back at the Scottsdale Air Park. We actually have a pretty decent crowd today. Um, see lots of babies, which is super fun. Um, but yeah, glad that you're here. Uh, we're going to continue in our series, um, We the People, a Gospel Lens for Political Conversations. And uh, I want to open up with a passage today in Mark chapter 12. Um, so if you have your Bibles, uh, we'll have the verse on the screen as well. We're going to start in Mark chapter 12 and just want to read the story. And as I read it, just kind of listen to the details, listen to some of the characters, some of the phrases that pop up, and uh, this will kind of be our guiding text for the day. So are we good, Tyler? We're good? Okay. Uh, Mark 12, we'll start in verse 13. It says, later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. And they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So they brought a coin, and he asked, whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him, amazed at this response. So Mark chapter 12, uh, when we read this passage, you have the Pharisees and the Herodians. They come, and they're trying to, to trap Jesus in this question. It's a loaded question. And when we kind of, like, read it at its surface level, we think, well, is Jesus talking about, like, taxes? Is this a question about paying taxes? You know, the two things that are sure of this, this life is death and taxes. And Jesus came to get rid of death, so maybe, you know, he's come to get rid of taxes. Is that what this is about, whether or not we should pay taxes? But there's something deeper that is, uh, that's happening here with this question. Uh, that that the Pharisees and the Herodians asked Jesus. And I I think it's kind of important to understand kind of the context of this question and why this question was was such a big deal. This question had a lot of weight to it. It was a very polarizing question. Uh, Last week, we talked a little bit about how kind of like the context of of what uh, the the story of Jesus, what was happening politically in the world with like the Roman Empire kind of in control of the place where Jesus is living. Well, there was uh, a man named Herod, Herod the Great, uh, who was in control of... The, the country Jesus is living when Jesus is born. Uh, we kind of know that story from like the Christmas story. Well, Herod dies around 4 AD, and he has three sons who divide up the kingdom uh, between them. And this is kind of like he's a puppet king for Rome, Herod the Great, um, but his three sons kind of take over the land that he controls. They divide it up between the three of them. Two of the, the sons are really good uh, rulers, and the third one is an absolute failure, just a complete failure. Everything... Like, everything he does, he's just not a good ruler, and, and he's kind of the one in charge of the land that Jesus is living in. And so what happens is, uh, because he's so bad, the Romans step in again. They send their legions to kind of, like, enforce order. And around 6 AD, they decide, we're going to establish a new ruler, and even though this is kind of like one of our puppet kings, we're going to have direct response back to Caesar of everything that's happening in this area, because it's so destabilized. And so they call the census, it's like this famous census that, that people kind of go, they're trying to count the people so that they can organize, 
and, and tax them, right? But um, what happens is when they do this, uh, there's a group of people called the zealots that see this not only as like this foreign oppression, but this is like the precursor to slavery. And so there's this man named Judas the Galilean who calls these zealots to arms, and they create this rebellion, this kind of like violent rebellion. And we know about this story. It takes place in about 6 AD because the, the Jewish historian Josephus talks about it in his history book. And in Acts chapter, I think it's chapter 5, Gamaliel, this famous uh, uh, Pharisee, talks about the story as well. Judas the Galilean leads this revolt against the Romans. And what happens? The legion destroys them, just completely like annihilates these zealots, scatters them everywhere, and then Rome is ticked that this happened. So Rome imposes not only a tax, it's now a tribute to the people in this land because of this rebellion. And this tax is a heavy tax. It's more than just the imperial tax because of this rebellion. That takes place in A.D. 6. Now, Jesus, when he comes onto the scene in his ministry, like this is taking place in his early 30s. And so this is like 25 years after this tax is imposed that the zealots have this rebellion. And, and this tax is super controversial for the people living in Judea, living in, in kind of where Jesus is at. Why? Because... The tax was imposed because of this rebellion. So some people are mad at the zealots. Some people are mad at the Romans for, for having this heavy tax. And they start to fall into these different kind of categories. In this story, in Mark chapter 12, who do we have? We have the Pharisees and we have the Herodians. Well, the Pharisees didn't like this tax at all. They thought the whole thing was just super oppressive, unjust, unfair, and they wanted to do away with it. They knew that they needed to pay it for the time, but they wanted to do away with it because of what it meant for them being subject to Rome. The Herodians actually liked the tax because they were in control. These are like the governors of this town, or of this area, and so they like this tax, and they want to keep it, and it's tied into kind of their politics and their nationalism. And these are the two groups that come to Jesus with this question. What do you think about the tax. Should we pay it to Caesar? And it's a trap because if Jesus responds no, who is he siding with? The religious leaders that have moral and religious implications about this tax. And if he says no, that means the Romans are going to think this is a vigilante. This is another zealot. He's in trouble. We're going after him. If Jesus says yes, and he sides with Herodians, what happens? He loses the populace. All these people are, how could you, you total sellout? How could you do this? And so the question is super polarizing that's asked Jesus. This isn't just like a universal question about taxes. This is, which I think it is, but, it, it, but it's also a question that's rooted in this hyper-tense political environment. And, and they think you've got one side or the other. They're both trying to get rid of Jesus, and they realize that he's going to compromise a position if he answers. Some people are going to be happy, and some people are going to be furious. Jesus feels, it's almost like he gets kind of stuck in this position. And how does Jesus respond? Well, Jesus says, do any of you have a denarius, a coin? And they pull out a coin. And I think what's interesting is, on that coin is the image of Caesar. And there's an, an inscription, there's a jargon about kind of like who he is politically. And who doesn't have a coin? Jesus. Who does have a coin? These people that are trying to trap. So even if you're like watching this, you would realize like, okay, like 
they're the ones that are carrying this image with Caesar with them. And he, they have this conversation, and Jesus asks the question. He says, whose image is on that? And they say, well, it's Caesar's. Okay? And he, and he has this statement. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. And why are they amazed? Because they weren't able to trap him with this polarizing topic. The way of Jesus offered this kind of third way into the conversation. Jesus has an answer that actually flips it back on them, and they find that they are the ones that are trapped. They're the ones with the image of Caesar. They're the ones that um, have, have kind of like the wrong intentions here. And I think I wanted to tell the story. I think it's important, this phrase, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's, because in the midst of this political culture that we're living in right now that is so tense and so polarizing, um, we talked last week that that you've probably had a conversation that turned a little bit hostile when talking about politics right now. Um, with family, with friends, uh, you've, you've probably had a conversation that you, you couldn't, you had to just kind of like shut down and, and not pursue because you knew it would just be awkward and tense and, and argumentative and you don't want to be argumentative. So depending on your personality, you either are like, let's go, let's fight, or you're like, I'm not, I don't want to talk about it at all. And, and I think what we need to do as a church is talk about how do we talk about politics? What do we talk about when we talk about politics? And how do we talk when we talk about politics? We need a language that is centered around the gospel. And I, and I think that's, that's important because I think the church has to give our culture a way to talk about this in a civil and engaging and truth-seeking way. And if the church doesn't give the language, who gives the language to talk about politics? The culture. And we know the culture is just crazy. It's just chaotic. It's angry. Everyone's angry all the time. And so I feel like this kind of, uh, this, this is important that, that we have these conversations. And I think that this phrase right here is, is so important that we don't, we render to Caesar what is Caesar and we give to God what is God's. And here I think what is one of the biggest problems that we have when we talk about politics um, is that we actually, uh, it, it, here's kind of like the, the, the main point of the whole sermon. Don't render to Caesar what belongs to God. Don't render to Caesar what belongs to God. And I think a lot of our problems in politics with the way that we engage with our neighbors, whether or not it glorifies God and loves our neighbors well as followers of Jesus, is we start to play by the rules of the culture. We render to Caesar which belongs to God. So here's a couple of things that, that we, we should not render to Caesar. Don't render your identity to Caesar your identity. And by Caesar, I mean kind of like this, um, the politics of our day, right? Don't render your identity. This doesn't mean that you're not involved in these conversations, that you, you have a stance. We talked about this last week. We're not telling you to be a centrist. We're telling you to be centered on Jesus. But don't render your identity to this conversation. Our identity is rooted in Jesus. In Mark, Matthew chapter 10, it gives a description of Jesus' disciples. And I think what's interesting are just some of the details about this group of disciples. It says in verse 2, these are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, and James, son of Zebedee, which is like the funnest name to say in the Bible, Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, and James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Okay, it goes through this list of, of the disciples, like 12 disciples. 
And it gives only details about like three of them, right? Like Judas, the one who uh, betrays Jesus. That's important. But it doesn't talk about like Peter. We know he's a fisherman. It doesn't say Peter the fisherman. It doesn't say, you know, John the whatever he did, you know. But it, but it points out two of them. It says Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. So think about this. The zealots, we talked about that. They're the ones that are responsible for this rebellion that led to the tax. They haven't paid the tax in 25 years, by the way. This is a group of kind of extremists that are trying to kind of like get their country back from the Romans. And they are, are violent and bold and energetic and about what they're, they're zealous, right? They're the zealots. One of them is in the company of Jesus. And then there's Matthew, who's the tax collector. Do you know what tax collectors do? They collect taxes, right? The taxes that the zealots won't pay. And he's in the company of Jesus. And like, I can only imagine this story about the question about paying taxes. Like, I, I like the, I don't like to be in awkward conversations. I like to watch awkward conversations. And this, is, this isn't like in the text, but I can only imagine when the Pharisees and Herodians come to Jesus with this question, if I'm Peter, I would be like, Simon and Matthew, how are they going to respond, right? Like, this is a question about taxes, and here we have Simon, who's from a group that has refused to pay taxes this entire time, and he's responsible for the stinking thing, his group of people. And then there's Matthew, who's trying to, he's a total sellout, he's working for the man, he's trying to collect, like, if I was Peter, I would just be like, oh my goodness, I, I want to see how this plays out, right? The, these are the type, the group of, of people that were following Jesus, you have these two just kind of like wild extremes, and yet at the same time, as they are following Jesus, in the presence of Jesus, in the company, in the relationship with Jesus, they have set aside these social identities for something else. Something about Jesus' message, his mission, has, has transcended these rooted political positions with Simon and with Matthew. And we know that because these two guys continue to follow Jesus and they, they continue to be a part of this new church even after resurrection, right? These two guys who would have been completely on opposite sides have found something that they could set aside kind of the earthly cultural way they define themselves for something that transcends that. Their identity is rooted in Jesus, not being a zealot, not being a tax collector, they haven't rendered their identity to the culture, to Caesar, to the, to the politics of the day. And I think that's important because as we think about kind of like where we stand, um, it doesn't mean that we don't have positions, that we don't have even titles, but we're not wrapped up in putting all of our identity and worth in that. Um, last week, we talked about kind of the political quadrant with these different values that, that are good, um, but they also can become idols in which we defend or demonize the others. Um, this week, uh, there, I, I came across, there's a, there's a study out there called the Hidden Tribes, talking about like the Hidden Tribes of America. We had our staff go through this. Um, and basically, it's almost like the Enneagram for politics. And so it goes and it starts to identify um, the different like tribes that are a part of our country that are hidden, and you're a part of maybe without even realizing it. And I, what I found what interesting about this is like we kind of just assume it's like, you know, the left party and the right party, and there's not really a whole lot of, like, nuance in it. 
Um, in this, in this uh, study, it showed these are kind of the seven tribes of America. I think I've got a list of them. You have like the progressive activists, you have the traditional liberals, you have the passive liberals, you have the politically disengaged moderates, you have the moderates, you have the traditional conservatives, and you have the devoted conservatives. And so like you could go, you could go and take this test. It's really interesting to see where you, I think all of us on staff took it. We're like, I wasn't where I thought I would be um, as, I, as I took this um, test. But here's what's interesting. The two extremes of, of kind of these tribes that we identify with, uh, the extreme progressive activists only makes up 8% of the country's population. The devoted conservatives only makes up 6%. And so you have kind of like the, the farthest extremes of each side that make up 14% of the population, which I'm not good at math, but I think that means 86% of, of the population isn't a part of these two extremes. And yet these two extremes kind of like frame the entire conversation for our whole country. And, and, so, and, and we often identify the other side by the furthest extreme. And so we have these conversations where we just assume like 50% of the country is like in these extreme you know, positions. And again, it doesn't mean we, we're not allowed to be in those positions, uh, but what's interesting is like, how we identify, what we wrap our, our identity in, frames the conversations that we have. We become, we become very tribal in our political identities. Uh, read a book this, reading through a book this year, one of the best books I've read this year is called The Second Mountain by David Brooks, The Quest for the Moral Life. And he starts to talk about how these political identities that are tribal become the identity that we define ourselves by. We no longer define ourselves as followers of Jesus, but we start to define ourselves by these kind of political tribes. And he talks about how like individualism in our, in our country, individualism taken too far leads to tribalism. He says this, kind of a long quote, hang with it. Uh, he says, it certainly does bind people together, but it is actually the dark twin of community. Community is connection based on mutual affection. The tribalism, uh, and the sense that I'm using here is connection based on mutual hatred. Community is based on common humanity, tribalism on common foe. Tribalism is always erecting boundaries and creating a friend-enemy distinction. The tribal mentality is a warrior mentality based on scarcity. Life is a battle for scarce resources, and it's always us versus them, zero sum. The ends justify the means. Politics is war. Ideas are combat. It is kill or be killed. And mistrust is the tribalist worldview. These days, partisanship for many is not just about which political party has better policies. It's a conflict between the saved and the damned. People often use partisan identity to fill the void left when their other attachments wither away. Ethnic, neighborhood, religious, communal, family. And this is asking more from politics than politics can deliver. When we start to wrap up our identity, it's asking more from politics than what politics can deliver. Once politics becomes your ethnic or moral identity, it becomes impossible to compromise because compromise becomes dishonor. And once politics becomes your identity, then every electoral contest is a struggle for existential survival and everything is permitted. Tribalism threatens to detach the individual and turn him into a monster. So kind of like thinking through, remember, being, we're not telling you to be centrist, to not be a part of tribes, but when that tribe becomes your identity, something happens to how we view the other. 
And as a follower of Jesus, with our mission, our great commission that God has given us, the way that we view humanity, the way that we view and love our enemies, there's something that transcends these entrenched positions. And so we can be political, but we be political in a way that is shaped by what Jesus has called us to do, shaped by this mission that transcends these political distinctions. And we wrap up our identity. What we're doing is we're, we're giving our identity to Caesar. We need to give our identity to Jesus. This is where my identity is found. The second thing is this. Don't render your mind to Caesar or your thoughts or your thinking. Don't render your mind to Caesar. Um, I, I uh, love history. I quote this history podcast all the time. It's this guy named Dan Carlin. Um, he has these podcasts about like World War II, and right now there's one about like the Japanese theater. And I love history because it kind of like removes me from our current situation and reminds me that like people are just crazy like in every generation, like ever. Like it's always just chaos, right? Um, but, but Dan Carlin talks about how he used to be in pl political radio. And what he would say is like what's happening, like the conversation that's taking place, the way that like culture is defining how we talk about politics right now um, is that if, if for him when he was in political radio, his job was to create emotion and, or emotions. He was to, to, to try to provoke emotion from people. So he wanted to create anger and fear and sensationalism. And he spent all of his time doing that because the more you do that, the more people call into the show, the more people engage, the more people are trying to uh, respond, which, you know, gets more clicks, gets more viewership, gets more callers. Did you hear what so-and-so said so about so-and-so? Because they were talking, which gets more advertising money. And so like for him, he's like, the way that the, like, the, the political media works, whether it's like cable news, whether it's uh, you know, radio, talk, talk radio, whether it's uh, like YouTube, um, is you want to create emotion. And so you have these like, people that are on these extreme political tribes that are driving this conversation and he said, really what they are, they're, they're these professional political dividers that divide our country for money. He's like, that's what they are. Let's, let's call it what it is. It's like, they, they're being paid to do this to create the heat. And so he's like, there's always like, heat, 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 clicks, 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 money, money, money. And he's like, part of that is free speech. And part of that sometimes allows for a prophetic voice. But it has become so wild and vast and oversaturating in everything that we watch. Everyone is, is in on this that it starts to form us to think a certain way. It starts to enrage us. We're constantly enraged all the time. Like we've, we've given our mind over to political jargon. And so it, it's almost like it's one thing to be informed, but we're actually being formed by, we're being formed by these tactics. These tactics, we've given our mind to it. And it's so polarizing. What's interesting about this question that was posed to Jesus is they thought it was a polarizing question. They're like, you've got two choices. You've got one or the other, and that's it. And whatever you choose, we're going to nail you on it. One side's going to be upset. The other side's going to be for it, and it's so polarizing. Dan White Jr. is this author that wrote, polarization takes people that have something in common and emphasizes their differences. It hardens their differences into disgust, and it slowly turns disgust into blatant hatred for each other. This polarization. We find Jesus being polarized by this question, and he offers something that is completely different, the way of Jesus. 
Um, I think like part of, of what's happening too is um, when we have these polarizing conversations about like the political issues, um, the truth is we live in a complex world that is full of nuance. And oftentimes, like the truth and the, the, the thing that, that, that brings about resolution is found in this complex middle. Um, and and we, we're living in this world where nuance isn't allowed to happen. For Jesus, like they thought they trapped him because there was only two options and there's, they leave no room for nuance. And his response is this kind of third way. Um, I can't believe I'm going to quote him in a sermon, but Jeff Bezos says this. Whatever you think about Jeff Bezos. He says that social media is a nuanced destruction machine. Social media is a nuanced destruction machine. He says that, and I agree. Like this, the conversations that we're having on social media, um, we, we rip the humanity out of each other. Um, we're not able to, to kind of respond in nonverbal ways. It, it, we, we post memes like it's just the truth. And uh, what happens is it just destroys nuance. We live in this complex world that's constant. We're being polarized. Um, I, I was reading uh, something else about how in the midst of this social media world that we live in, uh, in this political conversation, the prayer of St. Francis might be the thing that saves us. Do you know how the, the prayer of St. Francis? To, to have this be something that we recite every single day, that we haven't given our mind to the culture and how the culture is talking about this political moment, um, but we're reminded that we are, our mind has been given to Jesus. Here's the prayer of St. Francis. It says this. It says, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand. To be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Two things that really jump out at me about this is one is that in this prayer, there is a relentless focus on countering the negative with the positive, and as followers of Jesus, to be instruments of peace and order. And the second thing is the orientation is a way toward others. The self is always the most itself when it loves others be instruments of peace in the midst of this uh, heated political moment. Romans chapter 12 says this, do not conform to the pattern of this world, to the way of this world, to the ethos of the, the, the culture around. Don't, don't conform to that, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. When we don't render our mind to Caesar, when we, when we give our mind to God, we're able to allow it to be transformed. So we are not entering into this the way that the world enters into it. We're able to test and approve what's good, what's God's will, what's pleasing. It's called discernment. Discernment comes when we render our mind to God, not to Caesar. Discernment allows us to engage in ways that allow for God's will to come forth. So the third, third thing, this is the last one. Don't render your heart to Caesar. Don't render your heart to Caesar. So we have identity, mind, and heart. When Jesus is talking about how uh, 
this question's been asked, like, do we pay taxes to Caesar? He grabs this, this coin, Daenerys, and it has the image of Caesar on it. The image of, I think it's Tiberius at this point. He's the son of Augustus, who is the son of Julius Caesar. And it talks about how this, this image is, you know, this divine ruler. And he says, give this, that has the image of Caesar, give this back to Caesar. But give to God what is God's. Do you know what is the image of God in this world? As we find in the creation story in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, that humans were created in the image of God. That humans bear the image, the mark of our, of our God. We're image bearers. We give this coin back to Caesar that has his image, but we bear the image of God, so we give our lives back to God. We give our hearts to God. We give ourselves fully to him. We give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And what that means is we have a responsibility uh, to, be, uh, to, to be good citizens here on earth, to be involved politically, to be involved in the process of what it means to, to, be, you know, to be a good citizen. But, but we give ourselves to God. That is where our allegiance stands. And the question I think that we have to ask in all this is, who has your heart? Is this something that you've rendered to the culture, that you've rendered to the political moment? Or have you given your heart to Jesus? Have you surrendered that back to him because you bear the image of God, giving that back to God? Jesus says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's. I think that the way that our church and I think followers of Jesus navigate this political moment with a language um, that, that glorifies God and loves our neighbor is that we don't play by the rules of culture. We don't render our identity and our mind and our heart to Caesar. We give all those things to God. We stay involved. We have positions. We have convictions. But we do that through the lens that God is sovereign and control, and we are a part of this mission that transcends our moment. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. What a story that we're reminded that Sometimes we forget that uh, this isn't the first moment in history where politics is a heightened issue. But I can't imagine um, just to be there that day when they asked this question, to see how you responded. And in a culture that was polarizing and driving people, um, Lord, you respond in a way um, full of wisdom and discernment. And Lord, as we uh, are in the, the, this season that everyone just seems angry all the time on edge, it's hot out. Good Lord, it's 118 out today. Um, Lord, we want to be people that glorify you with everything that we do. We want to be a church that loves our neighbors well. So even as we engage in something that is so heated, Lord, we ask that we wouldn't surrender things in our life to the way that culture does it. We'd be unique, set apart, holy. Lord, that it would give our words influence with people, that we'd be good news when we enter into conversations, that we would point people back to, to you, to truth, to what you're up to, that our focus would be on you, 
So Lord, I just pray that you would just give us wisdom and discernment, Lord, that you would allow us to keep you as the priority. And we just ask your blessing on Desert City. We ask your blessing on just the body of Christ here in Phoenix. Lord, we just ask your blessing on our city. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.